Children, you may now be dismissed. Well, when I was roughly their age, you know, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, uh, by that stage of life, my brothers and I would have considered ourselves, if not water park experts, at least water park aficionados. We loved water parks. Uh, we had been to water parks in Disney World. We had been to water parks at Six Flags. We'd been to plenty of standalone water parks. We loved them. If, if you took us there and left us alone, we would close the place down. We just we couldn't get enough of it. Uh, and so when our parents told us one summer, late in August, that we were driving north to a water park we'd never been to, to meet my grandma and to just have sort of a last hurrah before the start of the school year, we were thrilled. We were pumped. We spent the whole car ride trying, you know, imagining what this water park would be like. Now I know some of you who are younger here, we couldn't Google it. There was no Google. There was no way to know until we got there what this water park would be like. So we're, you know, we're we're saying, oh, I bet they've got a bunch of those super tall, super steep slides, and I bet they'll have a bunch of those slides that twist all around. You go down on inner tubes. Uh, hopefully, they have a wave pool. It'd be awesome if they had a wave pool. And so, you know, over this 45-minute car ride, we just we built up and built up the expectations for this place. And then we got there, and we got out of the car, and we were profoundly disappointed. We saw what looked like a, uh, a school playground from the 1950s that had been flooded. Uh, so this is an actual picture of that water park, by the way. I was super excited to find it. Um, there was one slide that looked like an overgrown playground slide. I mean, it wasn't even that steep. It's, of course, made of stainless steel sheet metal, so it's also super hot when you sit on it. Um, and we, we as, as kids do, we didn't even give it a chance. We immediately started complaining to our parents. What is this place? Why would you bring us here when we could have gone to Geauga Lake or we could have gone to these other places? And my parents said, look, deal with it. This is where we are. This is where we're going to be. You can either go swim and have fun or you can sit here and have a pity party. It's up to you. We're going to go sit in the shade and have a nice day. And so we, given those two options, we thought, well, okay, we might as well try it out. We'll go, we'll try the slide, try some of these other things. And it turned out that we could not have been more wrong about Holiday Sands. What it lacked, and let's call it, you know, aesthetic appeal, uh, it more than made up for in a sense of freedom and, I would say, uh, a lack of supervision, <laughs> all right? <laughs> And it also came with that, that adrenaline rush you get when you're, when you're very much aware that if you push things a little bit too far here, you will get hurt, right? Uh, and for three boys who were, who were totally certain that you know, accidental injuries were things that happened to other people, it was bliss. Uh, we loved it. We spent all day in the sun and the water. I mean, we were so excited. We, you know, we couldn't be bothered to eat lunch. Uh, and then, of course, when the time came to leave, we kept things nice and symmetrical. Having complained at the front end, we then complained that we were leaving too early. Um, it was such a success that it became our family's sort of annual end-of-summer celebration. Uh, Holiday Sands, in the end, surpassed our expectations, but only after it challenged them and changed them. This morning, as we continue our summer series on the parables of Jesus, we are going to look at two short, closely related parables told by Jesus in defense of his own ministry, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Uh, Jesus tells these parables because Jesus, like Holiday Sands, has an expectations problem. Uh, Jesus' problem comes from his core ministry message. 
Matthew 4, 17 tells us, immediately after he's baptized, Jesus goes into the wilderness where he is tested, and when he returns, Matthew says, he immediately began proclaiming uh, what would be his central message for his whole ministry, which was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Now, this became a problem because, as you might imagine, this is an exciting message, one that was freighted with a great deal of hope. But it was also one that came loaded with a whole bunch of prior expectations. Whole bunch of expectations. Claiming that the kingdom of God had arrived and moreover that it was present specifically in his words and his ministry caused many in his audience to look around and say, where? Where is the kingdom of God? Now, I say it's understandable because if you had been a Jewish man or woman born in roughly the same time or same place as Jesus, you would have grown up in a world that reminded you at every turn that things were not as they were supposed to be. What happened to God's promises to Abraham and all his descendants that the, the, the promised land would be theirs forever? Okay, yes, you lived in the promised land, but you didn't run it. You weren't in charge of it. You didn't own it. And what happened to God's promises to David that his house and his line would hold the kingship of Israel forever. Wasn't David's face stamped on the coins that you were using every day to buy food? It was Caesar's. Just like it was Caesar's soldiers garrisoned in all your towns. And Herod, whatever Herod was, he was not a descendant of David. And what, most importantly, of God's promise over and over to his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people, that his presence would dwell in their midst. The prophet Ezekiel told them, he watched the glory of God, the presence of God, leave the temple. Had God returned and no one had noticed? Or was that return still yet to come? In other words, by the time Jesus shows up preaching this message that the kingdom of God had drawn near, everyone in his audience had very clear and, and we might add, biblically informed expectations about how the kingdom should look when it arrived. Listen, just as my brothers and I uh, couldn't help but compare holiday sands with our expectations for water parks, Jesus' audience can't help it. They hear this message and they immediately start comparing with the expectations they have been raised with for their entire lives. For them, the coming of God and his kingdom would have been impossible to miss. Because naturally, when God's kingdom arrived, the pagan Roman overlords would be thrown out and their puppet king Herod with them. Naturally, when the kingdom arrived, a Davidic king would take the throne again in Jerusalem. And in the land promised to Abraham, under the kingship of David's descendants, the temple would be cleansed, and God would return once more to dwell among his people. And so when Jesus, following his time in the wilderness, starts walking around saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, you can understand why people would hear that message and think, well, where? Where is the kingdom of God? So in response to that doubt, to that skepticism, Jesus tells several parables, uh, and Matthew helpfully groups several of those together in Matthew chapter 13, 
But we need to keep in mind that these are parables Jesus would have told often. He would have told them often in many different places. Again, remember, that's kind of a theme this morning. When Jesus shows up in a village, uh, you can't say, oh, gee, who's you know, you can't Google him. You can't pull up YouTube videos seeing Jesus' position on other topics, right? If you wanted to know what Jesus had to say about the presence of God's kingdom, you had to ask him. And if the number of parables about the presence of God's kingdom is anything to go by, Jesus was asked that question often. He was often asked to explain his ministry. Uh, he would arrive and people would say, look, you, you keep saying that the kingdom of God has drawn near. Well, where is it? How, how are we supposed to know that the kingdom is here? And why, why is it that the kingdom of God doesn't look like what we were raised to expect? And to these kinds of questions, Jesus replies by telling them a parable. Matthew 13, 31, he said, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds can come and perch in its branches. And that's it. It's a short parable. Uh, it's a type of parable we normally would call a similitude. That is, it's a parable that makes its point by comparing two things. In this case, the kingdom of God and a mustard seed. Uh, but I want to stress this morning, uh, and it's true not just of the parables this morning, but of all the parables, th that the key thing to identify is the specific point of comparison. Now, I know this might sound obvious, but it's a mistake that's easy to make. Jesus, when he's comparing these, isn't saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed in all possible ways, right? Obviously, it's not like it in all possible ways. He's saying it's like a mustard seed in one specific way, or maybe two very specific ways. Uh, now, thankfully, this morning, it's not too hard to identify the point of comparison because this is a short parable. We don't have a lot of extraneous detail. We have only what we need to get the point. Uh, and the point is pretty simple. Just as a mustard seed is very small and yet may grow into a huge plant, large enough even to house some birds, so too the kingdom of God, which in the ministry of Jesus may now appear small and insignificant, will nevertheless, after some amount of time, become enormous and of great significance. And that is, in essence, Jesus' response to his questioners and his critics. He says to his audience, essentially, look, I understand what you were expecting I'm a Jew too. I was raised in a Jewish household. I get it. You are expecting to see the equivalent of a tree full grown, full of leaves and branches, providing shade and room for birds to nest. And you're confused because when you look at my ministry, what you see is the equivalent of a seed. But, but, just like with the mustard seed, the tree is present in the seed. In that tiny seed, you have everything you need for this huge garden plant. So too, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is present right now in the ministry of Jesus. And as sure as God is faithful, that small, insignificant ministry that you see today will one day surpass all of your wildest expectations. One day, the kingdom of God will be impossible to miss. And, and, 
everything that's needed for that huge, impossible-to-miss kingdom, Jesus says, is already present today in his words and his ministry. Now, to Jesus' audience, I think, there are two prongs to this parable. There's There's a comforting, hopeful prong, and there's a challenging prong. First, for those who want to believe, right? They want to believe that Jesus is telling the truth, that the kingdom has come near. It's just, you know, they're cautious. They're a little skeptical. It's, it's not what they expected. To that group, Jesus says, hey, be encouraged, be hopeful. You are right to be excited. The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus' own teaching, his many miracles, and most importantly, I would add, his offer of divine forgiveness are the evidence of that claim. Those are the things that Jesus points to. He says, look, the kingdom is here. Look at what God is doing. They are the proof of the presence of God's kingdom. But it isn't yet the fullness of the kingdom. But that will come, Jesus promises. It will come. The second prong, though, is that this parable is also a challenge. It's a challenge to human perception and human judgments about significance Many in Jesus' Jesus' audience would have looked at him in his ministry and dismissed it. How can you get excited about a kingdom with no power, by which they would have meant what we mean? No wealth, no military might, and no important political alliances. None of that. How can you get excited about that kind of kingdom? What kind of chance does it stand? How can you get behind a guy who, by his own admission... I mean, he proudly goes around telling people he doesn't even have a house to call his own. And he has, what, 12 committed followers? You want us to be excited about that? Forget it. They judged, as all of us usually do, by the standards and metrics of what is valuable, significant, and powerful from a human perspective. And with this parable, Jesus suggests He warns us, in fact, that we are not very good judges of significance and importance, especially where the work of God is concerned. We dismiss the tiny mustard seed because we, in our minds and with our might and with our wisdom, look at that tiny seed and we can't possibly imagine how it could ever amount to much. Jesus warns his audience not to make that same mistake when they evaluate his ministry. Because when God is involved, things that seem small and insignificant can yet yield enormous results, huge results. That's the first parable Jesus tells uh, in defense of his ministry, uh, in response to the doubts about the presence of God's kingdom. Uh, but Matthew provides a second, right after, next verse, Matthew thirteen thirty-three. Uh, This parable is similar, and it makes a similar point, but it's not quite identical. Uh, This time, again, you can imagine people questioning Jesus, questioning his claim, and Jesus responds by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, that's even a shorter parable, but I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh, you know, I might just be projecting my own uh, baking inadequacies here. But I'm going to go out on a limb and, and, uh, and say that I, I'm guessing we need a little bit more information, some of us here, to make sense of this parable. We need to know a few things. 
So first, what you need to know is that in the ancient world, leaven uh, was a small amount of fermented dough that had been kept back from the last batch of bread that you made. You kept back a small amount of that fermented dough, and you would use it. The next time you made bread, uh, you would add back in that little bit of fermented dough, and you would leave it. And over time, that little bit would ferment the whole batch of new dough. They, They didn't have yeast, so this is how they would make bread rise. And then what you would do, after the leaven had done its work and this new batch was totally fermented, you would do the same thing. You would pull back a little bit of leaven, a little bit of fermented dough, and you would keep it until you baked bread the next time, right? Uh, By the way, if you're curious, this is still very much a workable method. People to this day use it to make delicious bread. I've eaten some of it. Uh, So that's the first thing you need to know. Second thing we need to ask is how much is three measures of flour? Uh, As the name suggests, uh, we need to remember, you know, ancient measurements weren't as precise and uniform as we would always like them to be. As best we can guess, that's something like three gallons of flour, all right? The better way, I think, maybe to think about this is Jesus, I think, is trying to reference the maximum amount of dough that one person could need at a time. So, so far what we've got is small amount of leaven, largest possible amount of dough one person could need at once, all right? Third thing, last thing we need to know is a little bit about the process. If you've never done this, uh, what you need to know is that when you take that leaven and you knead it into your new dough, nothing happens initially, all right? There's no explosion. There's no exciting color change. It, it, it looks exactly as it did before you kneaded the leaven in. If you were to bring somebody from a, from a different room and say, tell me, Has the leaven been added yet or not? They would say, I don't know. It's impossible to tell. Because it is impossible to to tell initially. Uh, In the beginning, the presence and work of the leaven is hidden, and it's hard to discern. Let me say that again, because this is the key for interpreting the parable. In the beginning, when the leaven is first added, the presence and work of the leaven is impossible to discern. Okay, I wasn't going to do this, but I can't help it. Um, little, little nerdy note for you. In the parable, if you have the ESV, they will say that this woman hid the leaven in the flour. Uh, if it strikes you as an unusual verb in this situation, it is. Um, kneaded, at, I mean, mixed in, those would all be much more common. Uh, but this is kind of a little hint. It's about the hiddenness of the leaven, right? She has hidden the leaven. Because when it's mixed in, at first... You can't tell that it's there. It's hard to discern. Now, this parable, once more, it's it's like the last one. It's a similitude. Uh, It's making a simple comparison between two things. In this case, the small amount of leaven and the seemingly small and insignificant ministry of Jesus. So how is this parable a defense or explanation of Jesus' ministry to those who doubt his claim that the kingdom has, in fact, drawn near? Well, the key point here, just like in the last one, is that despite their perception of his ministry or their lack of perception, the kingdom of God is present right now in the person and work of Jesus. And this parable expounds upon that in two ways. First, like leaven added to a new batch of dough, the kingdom is present here and now in this world, and it cannot be stopped. Look, uh, Even those of you who are not master bakers like me will probably guess, will probably understand that once you knead the leaven into that dough, 
there's no going back, right? You can't go, oops, I didn't mean to add it yet. Let me take it back out. Once you mix that in, it's in. Uh, once the leaven is added, there is no stopping the process. Similarly, Jesus is suggesting here that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated through his teaching and ministry. And like the leaven, though it might be hard to discern at first, it is nonetheless here, and it cannot be stopped. What God has started in the ministry of Jesus, he will bring to fruition. He'll bring it to completion. Second, Jesus again acknowledges, and I think this is interesting, he again acknowledges that it is difficult for his audience to perceive the presence of the kingdom. I think this point is made even more powerfully here in this parable. As I said, uh, there, there is no immediate or obvious evidence that the leaven has been added at first. At first, it's impossible to discern. And yet, what you may also know is that in due time, the presence and work of the leaven becomes impossible to miss. Because when you leave it alone to do its work, what eventually happens is that dough rises, doubling in size, possibly more. In time, it becomes impossible to miss the presence and work of the leaven. So too, Jesus says, that small and hidden though his ministry might be right now, in due time, the effect of his work, his work, his kingdom would be impossible to miss. Once again, I think we are challenged by the knowledge that God often, God often takes something small and uses it, something small and hidden, and he uses it to do something great and something incredible. In fact, I think you could even suggest after a reading of the, of the scriptures, that this is God's preferred mode of operation. He often takes something that we judge to be small and insignificant and uses it to change the world. I mean, just think of the cross, for example. Uh, now, I know this is a point I've made before. Some of you who've been around long enough can maybe accuse me of, of repeating it often but I think it's a critical point this morning. If you leave with nothing else, what I'd like you to leave remembering this morning is this. These parables are not just clever or even brilliant, though I happen to think they are. Uh, these parables, in their prediction about the future of Jesus' ministry, were correct. Let me say that again. These aren't just clever. This isn't just good wordplay, good verbal fencing on Jesus' part, fending off his, his opponents and critics, in their prediction about the future of the kingdom of God, they were correct. I mean, just bear with me for a moment. Imagine that we could somehow go back to Jesus' original audience and we could pluck somebody out of that time and place and bring them to ours for just a few hours, maybe a day. I mean, first, you'd have to explain to them, and it would blow their mind, that the world is, in fact, much larger than they ever knew. That Rome, even at its height, didn't, ruled over but a fraction of the populated area of the globe. And then you would have to tell them uh, that there are, there are billions of people living in places they never knew existed. Way more people that were alive than when they were alive. And then you would have to explain to them that this ministry that they just saw with no power, no wealth, no military support, no important political alliances, with scarcely 12 committed followers. 
that kingdom now spanned the globe. That in every place, including the continents, countries, and nations they had never heard of, today, right now, people bend the knee at the name of Jesus. That they worship him and praise him as their savior and the Lord of creation. Imagine how they would respond when they find out that there are more people alive today who call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, more people who acknowledge the reality and presence of the kingdom of God than, than even were alive total on the face of the earth when they were alive. After you got them to understand that, what do you think they would make of these parables? You think they would, they would judge that Jesus was correct in saying that his mustard seed of a ministry would one day become a mighty tree? Friends, the kingdom of God is today a mighty tree. That little ministry, that little bit of leaven has done its work. And God's not even done yet. The kingdom of God is here. It was inaugurated by the person and work of Jesus, and that little ministry has grown into something mighty, and God is still working. So, what can we learn from that parable today in our context? Well, for starters, I want to make sure, uh, hopefully it's not even possible at this point, but I want to make sure we don't rush past the main point just to get to personal applications. It's important that we remember that both parables insist that the kingdom of God broke into human history through the person and work of Jesus. Now, it is worth acknowledging, though, we're in a very different place, as I just said. We're in a much different place vis-a-vis -vis the ministry of Jesus than his original audience. But, you know, as I thought about it this week, it occurred to me that we are not without our doubts these days either, are we? Uh, you know, sometimes those doubts are triggered by personal tragedy, right? When, when tragedy strikes us in our personal lives, uh, whether it's us, people we love, um, Man, that can cause us to doubt. We, we can have dark times where we, we look at what has happened to, to people we love and we can ask, Lord, where's your kingdom? Sometimes it's we look at what's happening in our city or we look at the direction of our culture and our country or we look even now at unjust wars that are this day taking thousands of innocent lives. And it can be hard sometimes not to take that in and start to doubt a little bit ourselves, to say, man, I mean, if the kingdom of God is here, where is it? Where is it? And in those moments, I think the parables still have something to teach us, something to tell us. They would tell us that we need to recover a mustard seed and leaven perspective. We need to remind ourselves that we are not reliable judges of size and significance, we are not always able to see clearly the work of the Holy Spirit until it comes to fruition. But friends, God will bring it to fruition. No matter what we are experiencing personally, no matter the travails of the wider world, the kingdom of God is here and it will not be stopped. Let me suggest two appropriate responses for the church today given that tr truth. First, we as the church should bear witness to and celebrate the presence of God's kingdom. Look, I know that might sound a little bit funny, but this is actually a big part of the job that Jesus has given the church from the very beginning. We are to be his witnesses. 
We are to be on the lookout for places where God is at work in our world, and we should be calling attention to what he is doing. And when we see it, we should celebrate it. We should worship and glorify God because of what he is doing right here and right now. Uh, And just as a reminder, uh, this church, this service this morning is part of the way that we do that. Uh, This gathering, we are evidence of the presence of God's kingdom. And when we worship Jesus together this morning, we are, in our own way, testifying to the presence and work of God's kingdom in our world. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore the problems we see around us. But it does demand, I think, that we are to be a people of hope. When others are discouraged by the state of the world, when when brothers and sisters are discouraged, we should be, like Jesus, the ones who say, nevertheless, the kingdom of God is like leaven, worked into a new batch of dough. At times, yes, its presence and work are going to be hard to discern, but the leaven is there, and in time, it will do its work. Second, I want to suggest that we as the church are called by these parables to pray, hopefully, for the flourishing of the kingdom in exactly the places where our world is in pain. Listen, at those times when we look around and we see the work and movement of God, uh, I, I trust and believe that next week we will be able to do that as we reflect back on VBC. When we see God at work, when we, see, uh, when we see repentance, when we see forgiveness being extended graciously, when we see lives and, and nations transformed, we should be first in line to celebrate and glorify God because of that work. But when we see suffering and pain around us, when tragedy strikes our city and our neighbors, we should be first in line also to pray with and for those who are grieving. Look, when we look at Ukraine and Afghanistan this morning and we see what's happening there, we should not turn a blind eye. We should be interceding constantly before God, praying urgently for his kingdom to flourish there. Because we of all people know that whatever else can and should be done to bring peace and order and human flourishing to those situations we of all people know that ultimately what those situations need most is for the kingdom of God to flourish. We need the leaven of God's kingdom to do its work there. And if we believe that, and we should, then we ought to be first in line praying for the world at exactly those places where it's in pain. We know that the kingdom is here. We know that it will do its work. We should be praying always for those places that need it most. Uh, When I was in junior high and high school, there was a good friend of mine. Uh, We went to school together. We were in class together. We played sports together. Um, We hung out together outside of all that as well. Uh, And he was not a believer. Uh, We'll call him Ryan. Um, He was a good friend, and he was somebody that I invited frequently to youth group and church functions, uh, and he occasionally would come. And when he came, he enjoyed himself. He had a good time. He liked being there. Uh, He was somebody I knew had heard the gospel message many times at those kinds of events. Uh, It was somebody I had personally shared my faith with on several occasions. 
And yet, uh, it seemed like we never quite got over that last hurdle. Uh, And in fact, that began to be frustrating for me because I thought, what's the problem? Like, what, is there a problem with him? Like, is he uniquely stubborn? Is the problem me? Am I just, am I not doing something right here? Could I be explaining this better? And then I became more discouraged too because, you know, as time would go on, I felt like, you know, this wasn't following the trajectory that I had seen in the evangelism curriculum, right? Like, I, I wanted to see progress. I wanted to be, see steps being made. I wanted to at least be able to tell myself, you know, after getting him to come on a youth retreat, like, man, I can see a real difference. And I couldn't. I felt like, you know, some, some days he seemed more favorable and other days not. And I just, I became discouraged about it. Uh, one day I'm sharing this to my mentor in high school and he said to me very memorably, I, I see the problem exactly. And I said, what? You know, and I'm thinking like, man, it was that easy to identify and we're going to get this thing straightened out, ironed out. And he said, yeah, the problem is you think you're the Holy Spirit. And, and I said, well, well, no, 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 that's not the problem. I don't think I'm the Holy Spirit. He said, no, no, yeah, I think, I think you do. He said, what you need to do is you need to do the part God called you to do, which you're doing, just keep doing it. And you need to trust the Holy Spirit to do the part that's his job, which is to convict people of the truth and to bring them into transformation, to transform their hearts and minds. And he said, look, you're upset because you can't see the work the Holy Spirit is doing. But no one ever said that you could. You need to do your part and trust him to do his part. And I kid you not, I think it was like two weeks after he told me that and I reluctantly accepted that I had indeed been conflating my responsibilities with the Holy Spirit's responsibilities, uh, that I find out from a common friend of ours that he had talked to Ryan And Ryan, on the spot, had accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, there's a lot. There's like, man, we could could turn that into a whole sermon all on its own. Uh, but, But what I'd like you to notice this morning, one of the many things I learned from that experience was that I am not a reliable judge of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our world. I'm just not. And I hate to break it to you. You're not much better at it than I am. You're just not. It's just true. It is, not, it is not always obvious to us. The, the, the work of God's Spirit is, is sometimes very hard for us to see. Sometimes it's impossible for us to see until God brings it to its fruition. Friends, the kingdom of God is here. It's here. Jesus broke into human history. He broke it into our world. He inaugurated it. And like leaven, it is, even when we struggle to see it, the Holy Spirit is working and he will not be stopped. The mustard seed of the kingdom has already become a mighty tree. So just imagine what God might still do. So let us be people of hope, praising God when we see evidence of his kingdom all around us, but also praying with great confidence for those places where the movement of God's spirit is so desperately needed. Let us pray that his kingdom will come and his will will be done in those places where our world today is in pain. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for 
what really should be for us a pretty simple and obvious reminder of the presence of your kingdom. And yet, God, I confess, even as I prepared this week, man, it's a, it's a reminder we actually need. We do need to be reminded that your kingdom is here and that it's, it is like leaven worked into the dough. It is present and it will accomplish its work. There's no stopping it, even when we don't see the work. So God, we give you praise and glory for that this morning. Uh, Lord, what, what an incredible thing that we should live to see the day when people from so many tribes and nations would call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. What a perfect week to have Dave and Jules share uh, people who, who every day in their ministry are seeing the reality of that truth. God, what an awesome thing and what a privilege that is. Lord, I pray that as we, as we are inspired by that, as we are excited and motivated by that, I, I pray also that that would drive us to urgent prayer, specifically for those places where your kingdom is still so desperately needed. God, we do want to lift up those places. Uh, Lord, I, it just Ukraine weighs so heavily on my heart right now. Lord, I pray for those people who, through no fault of their own, have been cast into such terrible tragedy. God, we need a lot of things to happen there, but most of all, we need your kingdom to do its work and to flourish. And we pray that that might happen this morning. God, I pray too that you would convict us of the people in our lives, people that we know and see, people that we work with, people we're related to. God, might you convict us of the need to pray for them? Might we pray faithfully and regularly for your Holy Spirit to accomplish his work in their lives? Lord, we ask that that would be so. In your name we pray. Amen.